Good morning, everybody. So great to be with you this morning. Pastor Bill is on vacation, so you get me again. Um, I'm going to start this morning just to kind of get ourselves in um, in a good framework for um, our scripture this morning, just with 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We've been in the middle of a series right now called Jesus Revealed, and each week we've dissected some small portion of who Jesus is for us. Week one, we saw Jesus as having a heart that everyone would know him through the ministry of, and testimony of the Magi from the East. Week two, we saw Jesus as the beloved Son of God who invites us to know our own identity and values. Week three, that was me, I was saying that Jesus was caring about our joy, right? Turning water into wine. Week four, we saw Jesus as compassionate and available in his feeding of the 5,000. And last week, we saw Jesus as trustworthy, walking on water and asking Peter to join him on the water. This week, we see Jesus as the suffering servant of love. What does that mean for us? We're in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 27. In the blue Bibles in front of you, that's page 190, I mean, 797. And I'm going to go ahead and read this. And as I do, I'm going to give some comments to kind of put us into the context of, of what's going on here. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, this was a Gentile city just north of the traditional kingdom of Israel, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man was sort of a mysterious title at this point, right? Did not have any implicit messianic um, connotations to it. They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? This was the royal you, right? He was talking to all the disciples when he was saying this. But Simon Peter steps forward and answers. You are the Messiah, son of the living God. This was a deadly confession because kingship was implied within this title, and that would have really made Herod angry, right? He probably would have just immediately gone after them at this point. Verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build the church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This was a play on words. Peter itself meant rock. So both Peter was the rock in which the church was going to be built, and the confession, right? We're the confessing people. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. He was biding his time, right? Now, at this point, it is important to understand that the disciples were ready for war, right? The, me- the Messiah was meant to be this militaristic political leader who would go in and take over the kingdom of Israel once and for all for the Jewish people. 
N.T. Wright describes them as kind of huddling up for a battle plan, right? Quoting N.T. Wright, the obvious solution would be this, march on Jerusalem, pick up supporters along the way, choose your moment, say your prayers, fight a surprise battle, take over the temple, install Jesus as the king, and that is how the kingdom of God will come, that is how the Son of Man will be exalted. We may be sure this is something that they had in mind. This is the idea that we get from all the commentaries, not just N.T. Wright's. But imagine that this is what Jesus says instead. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, but suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Not not the same thing. So Peter (laughs) takes took him aside and began to rebuke him. Even though he had just declared Jesus as king and with all the authority of God, he still says, never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turns to Peter, says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind, this is very important, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for your soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. This is the word of God for us today. Do you see what's happening in this passage? Peter Peter goes from verse 17 as being the absolute rock in which the entire earthly church is going to be built. He is blessed. And by verse 23, he's called Satan. Wow, that's uh, that's quite the shift there, isn't it? You see, what Peter gets right is the job title of Messiah, but he gets wrong the job description of what it means to be Messiah. This is vital, right? I don't want to cheapen the confession. The confession is a huge part. It's what our church is literally built on. But getting it correct, the job description is absolutely important. Jesus considered Peter evil and sinister in some way, for missing out on what the job description is. See, the messianic job description that Peter understood in his time was flawed because it was human concerns, right? And this was what the scriptures and the rabbis had taught and the scholars had taught, the commentaries and first century um, Jewish works, all point towards military conquering. And what the problem with this was, was that this was a concept of who Jesus is that was way too small. Godly concern and Jesus' concern was nothing less than the cross. It was way beyond winning back some territory or some political victory. Jesus had his eyes on nothing less than flipping the entire human value structure on its head, reconciling all of humanity back to God, the fulfillment of all the scriptures, the eternal forgiveness of sins, 
inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth. These were huge concepts that were beyond what Peter and the, and the scribes and the teachers of the time had in mind. We too have to be people whose concept of Jesus and of God is constantly expanding, right? We understand only through a mirror, only through, as the, as the King James Version says, through a glass darkly. We need to be able to adapt like Peter did. Now, we don't see Peter's response here, right? But Peter, like, constantly throughout the scriptures is, uh, is learning, sometimes, like, on the spot, right? John 13, Jesus is washing his feet. Peter's like, never! I am unworthy of having you wash my feet. Jesus says, then you'll have no part in me. Then he says, well, then wash my whole body. Jesus is like, your feet will be fine. Right? This is through a glass darkly. We're constantly learning, constantly shifting. Now, I want to make this point clear. This does not mean changing or flexing on the essential doctrines of the faith. Far from it. It's not thinking that scripture is incomplete. Far from it. But we must humbly be aware that we worship an infinite God. And that actually what we need to do is study more, right? In prayer, in worship. We have to let our expectations be constantly challenged. It's a great thing about theology, right? Like when I was in theology class, it's like, look, you're only ever going to get this like partially. So that gives me a lot of, a lot of uh, space to learn and grow. But here's the kicker in all this, right? Here's the great like irony, the, the switch that happens, right? The unexpected turn. Remember what's happening. Jesus explains his strategy and his own fate. Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter then, I mean, Jesus encounters with an even more intense rebuke, right? Get behind me, Satan. And then he turns to his disciples, and he does nothing short of laying a cross at their own feet. I like to think that they're all stunned silent, right? This is the terrifying beauty of what it means to be a Christian. Is it the job description ends up being our own. Jesus is the God-man, is the fullness of God in human form, but as man is also teaching us what it means to truly be human. The job description ends up being our own job description. Deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow me. John 13, 14 says this beautifully. Now that I, your teacher and your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash each other's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This is the cross. See, this is the misconception that I think we as Christians have sometimes, is we think that, like, all right, we declare Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we have eternal life, period, everything's done. But do you see in Scripture? The demons do that, too. Mark 5, 7, Luke 8, 28, they call him Jesus, son of the most high God. They, they understand the job title. They probably even understand to some degree what the job description is. What they do not know is what discipleship is and the ramifications of truly declaring Jesus as our Lord and Savior is a call to discipleship. And it is no small calling. This is where we have a choice This is the choice that is brought to us by the person of Jesus. Do you want the job description? 
self-denial, the cross, and following Jesus. Now, <laughs> I want you to know that the, uh, the irony is not lost on me. The last time I preached up here, I was talking about the joys and pleasures of life and how they point to who Jesus is, and now I'm talking about self-denial. We're going to camp on self-denial for a little bit, right? Because sometimes we get this wrong, and I want to make sure that we understand like, the full implications of self-denial, right? The two things are not mutually exclusive. The idea that Jesus would die on a cross for us, that we should live lives of austerity and false piety is ridiculous. If you want to go with me to page 876 in your Bibles, um, this is John 15, um, starting with verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Do you understand? Like, our crosses, our self-denial, all the deep ramifications of being a disciple helps make our joy complete, right? My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has none than this to lay down one's life for our friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. What is the command? Love each other. If we don't partake in Sabbath and joy and have rest and satisfaction, then we don't have the resources to be there for others. It gives us the ability to stop constantly self-soothing with things like I do, binge-watching Netflix or playing on my phone for a long time. If we rest and we take Sabbath rests, we can be there for other people. If we are satisfied in our joys and in our pleasures. It must be known also that self-denial is not self-denial for self-denial's sake, right? You don't just, like, you know, forego things and somehow that shows your piety, Right? No, the litmus test for self-denial is to accomplish something for someone else. Jesus went to the cross for our sins, and as I said, reconciled all humanity to himself, fulfilled all scripture, eternal forgiveness of sins, inaugurating the kingdom of God. When we pick up our crosses, we do not accomplish that same thing, but we do fill our commandment, right? Loving each other. We show love to people. And this is extremely important this is the method to an effective witness. Now, effective witness is sort of like a churchy talk thing, but it's just it. Testifying to who Jesus is is by modeling Jesus in the world, right? One way that we do this, and another aspect of self-denial, is to recognize that we are not in the business of self-preservation, that is the sinister aspect of what Peter's rebuke was, right? He had earthly concerns. He wanted to spare his friend and master from suffering and death. But we're not in that business. There's two ways that we, I think we overemphasize over, um, the idea of self-preservation, right? One is via the church, we self we try to work for the church in a self-preservating manner, and we also do it for ourselves as individuals. Do you understand the section of what Jesus said here that means that we don't have to worry too much about the preservation of the church? 
Jesus guarantees that the church will be protected against the gates of Hades, the forces of death. Bonhoeffer says it beautifully in his letters and papers from prison. By the way, I do have two Bonhoeffer quotes in here. I studied him a lot. My wife thought that might be even too much, but this is what you guys get. I'm sorry. But he says, standing up for the cause of the church means we have little personal faith in Christ. Jesus disappears from view. We have no impact on the masses. It's decisive. We're heavily burdened defending ourselves, and we take no risk for others. And you see how if we spend all of our time working for the cause of the church, you know, you, you could look, it could look like you're denying God in some way, in the, in the idea of Matthew 10.33, but it's not. You deny God when you're heavily burdened with contending for the church and you're not in the business of being there for others. The church is not the church unless it is there for others, contending for people, taking up our cross of self-denial for the sake of others. Now, I don't say this as an admonishment here. I am constantly filled with faith by how well LifeSpring takes care of its people. I know this just from seeing and, and learning through relationships with you all, but I also see this behind the scenes. I've worked at LifeSpring since October, and I'm constantly amazed by the way that we take care of each other. But this is a warning in a way and a reminder that we don't let secular and even internal church forces cause us to get on the team of the church. Jesus is on our side. We are protected. Our responsibility is to each other, is to love each other. Another aspect of self-preservation that can get in the way of our credible witness, and this one's very difficult, is our own self-preservation, right? Peter wants to avoid suffering. It's nothing less than sinister. Sparing from pain is not our way. That is one of the true horrors of parenthood, is the idea that I have to make sure that my daughter's heart breaks for the same things that breaks God's heart, right? That is our responsibility, particularly in a North American context. We are often, not always, but often very comfortable, very secure, displaced from the suffering in the world at times, right? But for me, some of my own formative experiences and spiritual experiences came from serving others in homeless ministries. My wife and I have been involved with those from time to time. Less so now that we've had our daughter, um, but we always are looking to do that. My wife and I also suffered, um, served in a refugee ministry where we went for two years. We gave up our Friday nights to spend three to four hours with a refugee family who told us of these unthinkable experiences of violence and, and turmoil in, from their home country of Burundi, Africa. I mean, I even get into the problem of self-preservation when I didn't want to bring my infant daughter to go visit them, right? They didn't live in a great neighborhood, you know, that was um, overwhelming. There was six of them living in this two-bedroom home, and uh, it was uncomfortable and everything. And I was like, you know, maybe we should not bring the little infant that's like a few weeks old. But we did. But we know also that our own suffering that we take on for the world is not without, without edification, Right? Romans 5, 3 through 4. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And we also know that suffering is not forever, right? The cross was not an eternal cross, but it also was followed by the resurrection and glory of Jesus. 
We know that this too shall pass, right? And we cannot appreciate the rest and joy and beauty of things like the Sabbath and the joys of life unless there is a contrast of human suffering. This is our credible witness, right? Self-sacrificing love. We have to enter into the suffering and messiness of the world if we are going to witness to the world. Now, the harder part, even harder than this, is that we also have to hold our worldly ties in the right perspective, right? Peter's issue here is that he's got human concerns of self-preservation in hand, and he's tied to this relationship of friendship to Jesus, so much so that he wants to preserve Jesus from the complete, and he didn't understand this completely, but from the complete reconciliation of humanity towards, um, towards God. There is hard scripture that this allows us to engage with from the proper perspective, right? If you look at Luke 14, 26, or Matthew 10, 34, Matthew 10, 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of their own household. But it continues, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me, right? It's this connection of left, lifting our earthly and worldly ties to a point of idolatry that we miss, that we're called to be self-denying cross-bearers, right? When our love for our safety of our family is lifted above our calling for suffering that is risky. This is difficult to, to deal with, Right? It's one of the reasons why I think Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 is like, I wish you guys could be like me. Unmarried, no kids, right? Doesn't get, let things get in your way. I think the best way to describe this, though, is uh, through a Bonhoeffer quote again. Um, but the idea here is that like, he had gotten a letter from his best friend, and that letter just described that like, he was on the Italian front and the German army, and his thoughts were obsessed with his wife and small child. And it was... A, it was like making his life miserable, right? Bonhoeffer writes a letter of, of, of comfort to his friend. When you're in love, you want to live above all things. And you hate everything that represents a threat to your life. You hate the memories of everything that has happened to you. You hate the blue sky because it reminds you of them. However, there is a danger in any passionate love that through it you may lose that God the Eternal wants to be loved with our whole heart, not to the detriment of earthly love or to diminish it, but as the strong voice in which our other voices of life can be lifted in counterpoint, right? Do you see how easy it is to happen that we, that we so much are preoccupied with our own safety and preservation that we don't see the greater good of the cross? I didn't want to use this example, but it's the best one that I can think of in here, is Yoda, right? Star Wars? <laughs> he, he gets it right, right? Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate lifts, leads to suffering. Not the sort of suffering that we're supposed to enter into in the world, but it is a fear for our well-being makes us hate 
harbor hate in our hearts for the things that are threats to us. We can't testify to the suffering Christ on a cross if we are so preoccupied with our earthly ties that we can't see that we're called to love people, right? It gets in the way of our one legalistic command in Scripture, which is to love others, love God, love each other. Okay, I've spent a lot of time on self-denial. It's it's connected to the cross intimately. But the second point is the cross. It's linked to self-denial because there's suffering in the cross. But remember that the power of the cross, the power of Christ on the cross, is the most powerful event in human history. The reality that death for others is the ultimate power, and we partake in that event by taking up our own crosses. It is the event that shaped human history, the event that reconciles all creation back to God we have the honor to be a part of. But I want everybody here to understand also that the cross laid at every one of our feet is different for everybody, right? Some of you out there might be thinking to yourselves, I'm at the end of the line. I'm, I am full. I have nothing left to give. I am in suffering. But sparing your family your pain is a type of self-denial, Right? For some of you, picking up your cross means simply to let others in, to partake in your suffering, to put pride to death. Now, you might think to yourself, what does this accomplish for somebody else by letting other people in? You are letting other people in to bear your burdens. Now, how is this modeled by Christ? We see it clearly at Gethsemane, right? When Jesus went to the place of the disciples, a place called Gethsemane, he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Do you see, sometimes when we're at that point where we feel like we have nothing else to give and we're at the end of the line, our ability to let others into that, Jesus let his three favorite disciples into it. Of course, they fell asleep. That's our great calling, right? To stay awake with Jesus at Gethsemane. Sometimes that means letting people into your lives too. To be that person of suffering that helps accomplish something for others. Now the third point of discipleship is follow me. This means simply take the Sermon on the Mount seriously and to think, take Jesus' example seriously. Too often we think, well, Jesus did this thing. He was God. I can't get there. I'm not going to be too worried about it. No. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to transform us. We're meant to be people who are fruits of the Spirit. Bill says this all the time, but it is so important. Our lives must be marked by joy, by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And following me means following his commandments, loving people, loving people well. 
Now, there are a few, few application points here that I think that we just must always keep in mind. I told you I'd camp on self-denial for a long time, and hitting the cross and follow me was very, very quick. But there are applications in all this. Christianity is more than a declaration. It is a call to discipleship. The Great Commission is not get people to declare Jesus as Lord. The Great Commission is to make disciples, other people of self-denial, taking up their cross and following him. And we're not in the business of self-preservation, right? Even today, 2,000 years after the Rome of Jesus' time, it is still countercultural, right? What do we say oftentimes, right? Looking out for number one, taking care of my own. Even encoded in the United States documents is this idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And what does Christ say? Death on a cross, slave to the teachings of Christ, and pursuit of other people's interests. It's not like, you know, I'm going to do my third Bonhoeffer quote. I I didn't want to do this with you, but the idea here is, Bonhoeffer says, Jesus goes through the ages, questioned anew, misunderstood anew, and again and again put to death. It's because his ideas are countercultural. We must, in humility, engage Scripture and allow our conception of who Jesus is grow constantly. This is what I contend to you, is just answer this question to yourself. Are you prepared to take on the call of discipleship? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray this, this morning and throughout this week and throughout the weeks to come, that we just look at the cross that is laid at our feet and take it seriously, that we live lives that are purposed for others, that we, that we not worry about the risks that are involved with entering into the suffering of the world, but we, but we take this as a, as a calling, as the effective witness to the cross, to the reality of the cross that you've taken for us, that we may participate and this beautiful call that has gone throughout the ages, that has shaped human history, and that we become some part of it by lifting up others and by investing in other people and being there in their pains and their joys to take on their burdens. We know it's no small calling because your cross was no small calling. We see that at Gethsemane, right? If this is the cup that I must take, and that is what is in your will, fine, but It was difficult even for Jesus to do this, right? He called on his friends to support him. We all must call on our friends to support ourselves when we're in suffering too and not give in to pride. Sparing people from our pain is not letting them partake in in your own burdens, in your own sufferings. Just let, let us in humility interact with Scripture and to know that no matter how great our conception of what you can do and how you work in our lives, that it can always be bigger and expanded. And just let Scripture work on us that way. Let worship work on us that way. Let our own devotionals work on us that way. And just let us be these people. Amen. Good morning, everybody. so great to be with you guys this morning. Bill is on uh, vacation, so you get me again. And um, 
You know, I just want to start this morning with some scripture to kind of put our hearts where it needs to be for our message today. It's from uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, (laughs) even as I am fully known. Hi, darling. my (laughs) three-year-old. We're in the middle of a series called Jesus Revealed, and each week we've looked at some aspect of who Jesus has 